Hello, greetings, thank you for joining us and giving us the gift of spending time today as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and through Scripture. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're a non-denominational church of disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. And we'd love to hear your thoughts about our conversation today. Uh, please let us know what you think in the comments and if we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us online at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. Let us consider what the Apostle Peter had to say to the Christians of Asia Minor in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. So, since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude, because the one who has suffered in the flesh has finished with sin, in that he spends the rest of his time on earth concerned about the will of God and not human desires. For the time that has passed was sufficient for you to do what the non-Christians desire. You live then in debauchery, evil desires, drunkenness, carousing, drinking bouts, and wanton idolatries. So they are astonished when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness, and they vilify you. They will face a reckoning before Jesus Christ, who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Now it was for this very purpose that the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh by human standards, they may live spiritually by God's standards. Peter has been writing to the Christians of Asia Minor in general to provide them encouragement through the trials in which they're undergoing. He begins the letter in chapters 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 to give this encouragement based on this great salvation that's waiting for them, that's reserved for them, that will be made manifest at the final time, uh, and they're being guarded presently through their faith and their love for uh, Jesus in God. Uh, they are to maintain holiness and love. They are sustained by God's message. They are seen as the temple and as the spiritual Israel. And in chapter 2, verse 11, verse, through chapter 3 and verse 9, he begins his, mess, his, his core message to them by talking about the importance of having honorable conduct before everybody. Uh, this call to suffer for doing right as Christ is set forth as an example, and he applied it specifically to Christian slaves, wives, husbands, and then to all Christians. The rest of chapter 3, verses 10 through 22, and our section that we're considering today and even beyond it, are all part of the core theme that Peter is trying to establish, that Christians should bless when they are reviled, they should be zealous for good. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, just like Jesus suffered, uh, even though he had not done evil, uh, for the, the just for the unjust, and that he secured our redemption through his resurrection, and we are baptized because of it. And so now we begin chapter 4. So since Christ suffered in the flesh, um, whatever you want to make of verses 19 uh, through 22 of chapter 3. Uh, chapter 4 and verse 1 is very much a conclusion to chapter 3 and verse 18, uh, which itself is a conclusion of chapter 3 and verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good, if God wills it, than for doing evil, because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God by being put to death in the flesh, but by being made alive in the Spirit. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, therefore, Peter says, you should arm yourselves, these Christians, with the same attitude, since the one who has suffered in the flesh has finished from sin. And so again, he's returning back to the example of Jesus and using Jesus as a model. And they're supposed to have the same attitude. Very much like what Paul says, have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus in Philippians 5, chapter 2, verses, verses 5 through 11, excuse me. So they arm themselves that same way of thinking. And the reasoning is that those who suffer in the flesh have ceased from sin. And... 
the idea of that is not talking about those who sin in the world and are suffering because of it, as much as uh, the fact that when we are going through suffering and trial and we have put sin to death in the body, um, we are not going to find the, the sins of the flesh appealing. This is one of those things that happens when uh, somebody goes through great trials uh, in life. Sometimes it helps focus and sharpen, and especially when you are being persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ. That persecution will uh, grow you up very quickly, mature you very quickly, and really remind you of what's really important to you. Uh, yes, we often will talk about in those situations, some will fall away, some will some will renounce Jesus. But if you hold fast to Jesus through that, the appeal of sin has been lost because of the suffering that you're going through. And it's all here so that we would no longer live for these human passions, but instead for the will of God. And the more that we are dedicated to God and his purposes, uh, the less that we'll be able to be able to be distracted by both sin explicitly, and by all of those lesser goods that might want to occupy our time. And this is only possible, as, as Peter says, through this mentality of Christ, uh, spending his time on earth not uh, concerned about uh, human desires, but in fact the will of God. And so Peter then will talk about that idea, the idea of being concerned about the will of God, not human desires. And a very interesting rhetorical trick here, he just says, the time has passed was enough to do what all the Gentiles Explicit in the Christian, non-Christians here in the NET. Uh, Gentiles is being used in the Jewish sense of the term, uh, which is talking more about heathen conduct than the heathens themselves, right? Uh, so he's talking about the kinds of immorality in which the Gentiles normally would partake. It's a very interesting use of Gentiles here that way. You can understand why somebody would see this and then think he's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. Uh, however, we can see that previously uh, he's been incorporating the Christians as the spiritual Israel, and while it's certainly possible that there will be many who were Israelites who would be doing these kind of things here, uh, the, the debauchery and the, uh, and the wanton idolatries, uh, probably not so much among the Israelites. That This set of behavior here that he said that they all used to participate in is definitely the behavior of pagans. And so it's interesting that he is now welcoming in people who are by ethnicity Gentile. And he's calling them Gentile in the negative pejorative sense, uh, and he understands and expects them to understand that he's not talking about them anymore as the Christians, but talking about the people around them and the things that they are doing. And what are they doing? That life is described. Sensuality, lasciviousness, uh, drunkenness, uh, carousing, drinking bouts, the comos there and, in Greek, and the wanton idolatries. Uh, we can try to parse those out individually, uh, and we can see certain things, but for our purposes, it's kind of better to look at them as a whole. Because what you have here is the package of what passed for standard, normal uh, pagan behavior, especially for pagans of a certain, um, certain class level. Uh, all of these things go along with the kind of behaviors they're doing that marks them as pagans compared to uh, people who believe in the God of Israel and are looking for eternal life in him. What are they doing? Well, they will go to parties. Um, the, the drinking bouts here, the comos, is pretty much exactly what you'd imagine of a frat party in the ancient world. Uh, normally young people would involve a lot of drinking, would involve sexual immorality, it would involve uh, going around town, knocking over statues, all kinds of hooliganship, uh, often done by younger people. 
but not exclusively younger people. And of course, the older people perhaps were doing the symposia type thing like you can see in Plato, where they continue to drink and drink and drink and have various conversations about philosophy and uh, or things of that nature that may devolve as the participants get more and more inebriated. Uh, the wanton idolatries, uh, serving all the various gods in any way, shape, or form, but probably also specifically here looking at uh, the various kinds of... Um, Bacchanalic orgies and things like that that may go along with the uh, worship of Dionysus or other gods like that uh, that would definitely go well beyond just the standard traditional pagan observance. And so we can see here all of these uh, behaviors that are something that he even says they used to do these things, right? Because these Gentiles are astonished when you no longer walk in them. And uh, the time was past, he said for however long that you were doing it to do these things. It's a very interesting way of putting it, right? Uh, whether they had been just starting to do it or they've been doing it for however years, uh, that, that time is long past. The time is enough. And that, that's the way we look at repentance, right? We are changing our hearts and minds. Whether we are 15, 35, 55, 75, uh, we need to turn away from those things and to turn toward what God would have us do in Jesus. And these Gentiles... Uh, do not want, uh, will vilify you, he says, uh, when you do not continue to participate in that same kind of wickedness. Um, and that's something that probably these Christians of Asia Minor were ex experiencing. And this goes back to what happens when you have somebody turn away from previous behaviors. Uh, the early Christians find themselves very much in this situation of vulnerability, especially if they're Gentiles. They were raised in the Gentile culture. They had no doubt been honoring the household gods, the ancestral gods uh, of the house, of the city. Uh, they would have had no problem uh, serve, you know, offering some incense to the emperor, things of that nature. Uh, they would have participated in all these behaviors. But now they're not. Now, all of a sudden, they are no longer uh, going to these parties and, and, and getting drunk and participating in sexual morality and things like that. Beyond that, they're not going to the regular uh, services to honor the various gods to provide the sacrifices. They're not providing um, the service to the ancestral gods, which have been seen as a profound betrayal of family values. Uh, profound betrayal of family values. And so in that difference, they are they're casting themselves as distinct. And again, even if they are behaving toward their relatives in a perfectly godly way, uh, i.e. they are showing them love and care and compassion, they're doing good for them just as they're supposed to do, and they're showing great humility, they're not being uh, sharp, sanctimonious, judgmental, or anything like that. The people who are seeing them do this, and seeing these chains are going to feel judged because they, they perceive this difference where there had been commonality. And when you have difference where there had been commonality, that is where you will have some of the strongest passions of persecution. And so, do we have evidence of a systematic persecution on a, on a collective level of Christians uh, during the time that Peter is speaking? Not really. But does that mean that there wasn't any persecution? That that would be going beyond the evidence that we have? Because, again, the picture that we're seeing here would be consistent with a portrayal where the kind of persecution is much more inherently localized. It's within families. It's within friend groups. It's within a neighborhood context. Uh, and it's very much, you're no longer like us, even though you came from us and you used to be like us. And that is why uh, these Christians are being maligned. And you can imagine 
the kind of pressure they would be under in those circumstances. Um, if it's family members, if it's especially if it's somebody who does not have a lot of social power, like a slave or a wife or a daughter, uh, even a son in many of those contexts, uh, it's going to be a very hard, difficult thing to endure. And so that is why Peter says that they will face a reckoning before Jesus Christ, who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. That in fact, this is the exact reason why uh, the gospel has been preached to those now dead, he says. So that through they, Though they were judged by the, in the flesh by human standards, they may live spiritual by God's standards. Um, there's a lot going on here, a lot of different understandings, and a lot of it goes back to verse 19. We've got to see there's a lot of differences between verse 19 of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and verse 6. Uh, that God, Jesus, when he was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, went and preached to the spirits in prison. This is the gospel preached to the dead. Uh, spirits and the dead are not the same thing. The dead here are people who have died. The uh, It's not as easy to see here because the new english translation here has done a very good job of clarifying the most likely way what peter's trying to mean here what he's trying to communicate in this verse that there are those who uh those who are now dead the gospels preached to them and they heard it and they accepted the idea they heard the gospel is not just they heard it and rejected it, but they actually obeyed it and that they were judged by human standards so he's, Peter is appealing to the fact that there are some who, like them, became Christians. Some who, uh, like them, were persecuted even to the point of, of being condemned by people. And they, uh, di they died in the flesh. But God made them alive spiritually. And they are alive spiritually according to God's standards. And so this is a point of encouragement. Again, it's something that today we probably take for granted, but was something Peter wanted to encourage them with, that just because they kill you doesn't mean the, it is the end. Uh, that that this is part of the overall attempt to reorient the Christians' understanding of the way the world works by for, by encouraging them to look at it through Jesus, as opposed to the way the world works, where death is uh, a defeat. Where here we're seeing how death is victory when you believe in Jesus, affirm Him, and you suffer for it and die. That, yeah, humans may have killed you, but God is able to make you live spiritually. It goes back to Jesus' own words in Matthew 10. Do not fear the one who can just kill the body, but not touch the soul. Fear him who can cast body and soul into Gehenna. And that's what's going on here. And so what's interesting here also is notice that the, the encouragement for the Christians about the uh, persecution they're experiencing is not that, oh, well, you know, you're saved. Be thankful about that. It's there's going to be an accounting that God will judge. And this is something very important throughout this whole thing. That it's going to take a lot of strength to be able to do good and to suffer for it. And uh, when you do good and suffer for it, it is not as if you are renouncing the importance of, of judgment and accountability and righteousness. Instead, what you're doing is you're entrusting yourself to God, that God is going to provide the best and, and appropriate judgment that God has seen and God will do something about it. And... That's a very important theme in this that a lot of people want, do not want to necessarily emphasize, especially when they are trying to malign the kind of attitude Peter is trying to inculcate here, acting as if we're just acting as if there's no real need for justice or righteousness, so we just should just suffer as a doormat. And that's not at all what's going on here. But so the, the main theme, though, again, is that you 
will be able to overcome sin through suffering, and that you need to look to Jesus, who when he suffered, uh, God glorified him. And that arm yourselves that same way of thinking as Jesus. And it's an important premise for Christians to remember, that when we suffer for the faith, and in general, it's going to be leading us to be tempted less according to the flesh. Now, as long as we live, there's going to be temptations, right? And, and the temptations may change as time goes on. There's always going to be temptations. But we're in the midst of suffering. Those pleasures of life seem a lot more dim. And when we're endangered because of our commitment to Jesus, we're going to take that commitment more seriously. And when we compare and contrast the situation of the Christians of Asia Minor in the first century and ourselves, maybe part of our challenge is that we don't suffer that much that we suffer very little. It's not a desire, an invitation to want to suffer more, but perhaps that is part of our problem. Part of our challenge is that we have been able to grow soft because of our prosperity and because of the acceptance that we, and the level of acceptance that we still enjoy. It's also important to see how Peter has talked about how it is past time uh, to do all the things in the way of the flesh, that however old we are, it's enough. And that's a great way for us to look at it. It doesn't matter how long you've been in it, right? Uh, the, the temptations of the flesh should have lost their power for us. And so whether we've come to faith as a young person, as a, as a coming out of adolescence or extended adolescence, uh, or as an older person, whatever amount of time we spent in sin should be enough. And that is why we need to turn away from it and to follow the ways of Jesus. The contempt of unbelievers is a very real thing. And again, this is part of the, it's very important to realize how the gospel is absolutely contextual. And what we mean by that is not that the substance of the gospel somehow changes, but various aspects of it are going to be more highly or less highly emphasized based upon the situation and context in which you find yourself. So a lot of times if you're raised in an environment where you are around a lot of Christians and you're raised in the church, you know, what Peter says here may seem a little strange or foreign. Or a lot of times I'm afraid people try to actually create the situation Peter is talking about by being less than Christian in one's conduct uh, and in, in be, and being a sanctimonious jerk and, and thus inviting the kind of hostility that Peter is talking about, but not for the right reason. But for those who've converted, those who have had uh, that real shift and change where they were at one way and they are no longer that way, uh, it's much easier to uh, relate to what Peter says about being vilified by people for no longer walking as we did beforehand. Um, It is possible to experience contempt and derision because we have embodied God in Christ um, and that people see that we are not like them because of Jesus because we're trying to be more like Jesus. Um, again, this is something that is not intuitive for the Christian, because as a Christian, we tend to focus on how following Jesus means we're going to follow the, 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 the laws, that we're going to be good people, and we're going to help people, and we imagine that's going to mean that people are going to like us. And there is a sense in which that is true, that we are to have a good report among people, and that many may see and want to come and be a part of us, and that remains true. But for a lot of people... And perhaps even some of the people before they get to that point, there's that initial alienation that comes from the division, the, the, the gap that they see. And because they see that you are different, they are going to condemn that difference and act as if they can condemn you and get rid of you or change you back to what they are. That's going to make them feel better about themselves. 
Uh, that's especially true if you are somebody who used to live a certain way that was not healthy and you changed to follow the ways of Jesus and the people in your life at that time who used to walk with you in the unhealthy things see how you have changed and they feel judged and indicted for that even if you are being the nicest, most humble, loving, caring person toward them and about them. And it's also true about the nation state. Uh, this is something that we can see even in American history very vividly, 1917. Uh, the uh, David Lipscomb College at the time, and National Bible College there, and, and many associated institutions and people participating in them had a very strong pacifistic streak, very much like the Sergeant York movie. Uh, and the United States government came down hard on them and put a significant amount of pressure on them to uh, affirm and participate in the World War I movement uh, and pretty much crushed that uh, spirit of pacifism uh, so that by the time World War II there was almost acquiescence to the point now where the default position for many uh, in, in Churches of Christ is a much more uh, affirming of the United States military than it had been there before. Uh, and so it's because the government found that pacifism threatening, they found that posture uh, of not wanting to participate in the war machine of America threatening uh, because it was uh, challenging the propaganda that they were putting out. And as we look back, there was very good reason why. They, there was justification for more of a pacifistic posture. That, in fact, the, the less justified a conflict, the more propaganda there's going to be, and the more pressure and more force there's going to be expended in order to justify uh, the spirit that is being cultivated that is leading to war and violence. And it's one of those important things for us to remember and to, and to look at because uh, it happened again uh, in the aughts when it came to Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, it it will happen again the next time uh, that the government wants to drum beat us toward war. And it's something that, that Christians have to keep in mind uh, is there's that vilification if you're going to stand against such things. Uh, and, and where that vilification is coming from is that recognition is that our commitment to the kingdom of God is not always going to be the best thing for the United States of America. And even if we as Christians may not be aware of that, the United States of America government absolutely is. When it comes to uh, dead and alive, we can understand why a lot of the Gentile Christians might be distraught at the prospect of being condemned by the authorities and dying. Uh, how many of us are somewhat slightly concerned about that? We certainly can hear that a lot of the uh, conversations in many churches about what might happen uh, when uh, things that we believe based on what God has made known through Christ and in Scripture will, will not sit well with a lot of people in our society. Um so that, that fear is still very much alive. Uh, but what Peter doesn't encourage them to do is to, you know, be afraid and try to elect people to make other people feel okay with who you are, what you believe. Instead, he says, these people may have suffered and died in the flesh, but God keeps them alive spiritually. And it's that reinforcement of continued life and existence in the afterlife in the presence of God. Uh, I would use this as a way of saying... Um, when we die, we don't just die, that our bodies are, are you know, sleeping, as it is said, right? That the bodies await resurrection and our souls go to be with Jesus. And this, of course, is also a theme of Romans 8 and Revelation as well, is this, this turning, uh, looking at what the world looks at as defeat, as victory, not just for the fun of turning words around, but to, again, reorient our minds to look at it through the way of what God has done in Jesus, to really allow the gospel message to transform the way that we live. Because when we recognize that, we can see that what people think is alive is really dead, and what people in the world thinks is the way of death is really life, uh, because it is the way of Jesus. The way of humiliation, degradation, leading to death uh, is the way of life, the way of expanding yourself 
itself for, the, for others is the way of life. And that is the way that we need to pursue if we would obtain the resurrection of life. And so in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6, we see this uh, call to cease from sin, how Christ suffered in the flesh, that we're to arm ourselves in the same way of thinking, to cease for sin, uh, to no longer live in the passions of the flesh, but according to God's will, and that uh, the Gentiles may malign us, but God's going to bring all under judgment, and that uh, those who are alive in him will endure forever in his presence. And that is why it's so important for us to have that mind of Christ, to cease from sin and to serve God. If you have any questions or comments on our conversation here in 1 Peter 4, I'd love to hear them. Please let us know in the comments. Please subscribe to us. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings. We know that everything we have in our comes from you. We're thankful for uh, this life and all the provisions of this creation. Uh, every spiritual blessing you give us in Jesus, for Jesus, for the hope of redemption and, and the hope of resurrection. Uh, especially, Father, you have provided us the way forward in Jesus, and we can now uh, understand the way that we are to live and to glorify and honor you in all things. We pray that you would give us the wisdom, boldness, and strength to indeed recognize that the time is past for the time to live in the worldly passions and to no longer walk in them. And we pray for your forgiveness for those times where we stray and to do otherwise. And we pray that we might indeed stand firm and to uh, seek your will and that we will uh, continue to seek to glorify you in all things. And when we experience a conflict or division or or challenges from people around us, that we will stand firm for you and bear witness for Jesus to do good even when we are maligned for it, that you will be glorified in all things, and we have great confidence in that you will be the judge of all. And we pray that everything that we say and do will glorify and honor you on that final day. We look forward to Jesus' return on that day, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Again, so thankful that you've joined us. If we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VenetiaChurchOfChrist.org or on social media. We again thank you, and may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.